Last week, United Methodist Church leaders from around the world met to discuss the future of the church. At the center of the meeting was the church's stance on sexuality. The United Methodist Church is a denomination divided. 53% of church delegates voted yesterday to strengthen a ban on same-sex marriages and gay clergy. More than 800 delegates from around the world met in St. Louis and voted in favor of the church's traditional view of sexuality. One, yes, two, no. You may vote now. I believe we're ready if you'll put the decision on the screen. On the amendment, it passes. The decision made to ban LGBTQ clergy and same-sex marriage has driven a wedge in the church that had previously been accepting of LGBTQ people. Today, we visit a Frederick church caught in the midst of that debate and speak to LGBTQ members dealing with the decision. Uh, so with the decision by the United Methodist Church last week, uh, this Sunday was really the first time the church body had gathered to, to one, to worship, but also to discuss what had been decided last week. So you went to a church, so... What are Frederick County residents saying about this decision? Yeah, so Sunday morning I went to Trinity United Methodist Church, um, and they actually had an informational session that took place before the church service. And this is usually a time when they do Sunday school or sort of Bible studies, but they held a session for about 40 people who sat and listened to their pastor sort of talk about the decision that was made last week um, and what it could mean for the church going forward. Um, And it wasn't a session about uh, making a decision, but really just sort of summarizing what had been discussed at the, the general conference last week. So then the, the church service began afterwards, um, very traditional service. Um, it really wasn't mentioned that much during the actual service beyond an announcement that if anyone had questions. If you continue to have questions about what the denomination of the United Methodist Church is going through after the decision of the special session of the general conference, they can continue to reach out to the pastoral staff to talk about it. And one of the one of the more interesting things about that service was uh, the United Methodists do communion once a month, and it's always on the first Sunday, which happened to fall uh, this Sunday, um, being the first Sunday of March. Um, and the way the Methodists do communion um, is different from other churches, like the Catholic Church. You don't have to be a member uh, to take communion in the United Methodist Church. Uh, and the line is always that the table is welcome to all, and any and all can come, and any and all are accepted, which put painted a real uh, dichotomy with with some of the decisions that had been made last week regarding um, LGBTQ uh, clergy as well as same-sex marriage. So now with that, did you find that members of that church tended to follow around that 53% split that was made with the actual decision? Yeah, with, with conversations I had with some church members after the service as well as what I heard during the informational session, there was a pretty strong divide in terms of people being mad about what the decision sort of the message that the decision sent to people who might be LGBTQ and members of the church in terms of them not being welcome or them having sort of a, a ceiling on how far they can go in, in terms of the church and leading the church, as well as there were members uh, during the informational session that sort of asked, isn't this what we should have been doing all along, um, given some of the, the strict guidelines on sexuality in the Bible, which for the most part are somewhat unclear, um, and it's really open to interpretation depending on which verses of the Bible you're reading. But in their minds, uh, the decision that the United Methodist Church had made last week was the correct one, and then the decision to take more of a hardline view on sexuality was the thing to do. Um, One of the ladies who spoke during the informational session um, made the point that she thought 
it was the quote devil's hand um, in this debate that was really sort of trying to split the church instead of unifying it under this uh, view of sexuality that the church had eventually come to last week. So now can you explain a little bit more with the decision? Because I know that the church is something that's worldwide and not just in the United States. So how did that play out a little bit with this decision? Yeah, so essentially the the United Methodist Church is a worldwide body, um, and it really focuses on democracy and having uh, people have a voice. So this general conference that took place last week uh, was around 800 people, and there were delegates and leaders from throughout the entire world and different conferences in local jurisdictions. And it's a mixture of clergy, so pastors who are ordained, as well as lay people, um, so your church members who just sort of serve in leadership positions in the church. And what happened was they were looking at three different plans because this issue of sexuality had been something that's been a really strong divide and divisive issue in the church. So the three plans that they were looking at, one was called the simple plan, which essentially allowed all LGBTQ members and same-sex marriage to be allowed um, in the church. Uh, that was eventually voted down. Uh, this, the second plan they looked at was called the One Church Plan, which would allow local jurisdictions or churches to decide whether they wanted to ordain LGBTQ members or recognize same-sex marriage. And that was essentially what had been happening in the Methodist church beforehand. Uh, local churches were just sort of deciding what they want to do with the same-sex marriage issue or the LGBTQ membership issue. Um, and there was rules against it, but those churches were breaking the rules and never really being reprimanded for it, um, which is why this debate happened. And then the final plan, the traditional plan, the one that eventually passed, uh, was the one that banned LGBTQ members from being clergy and banned same-sex marriage in the church. Um, and sort of what happened with the, the international body, um, if you look at statistics of United Methodist Church members in the U.S., uh, they tend to be more progressive than other church bodies. Uh, so... Some of the statistics that stand out is like roughly 6 in 10 or 60% of United Methodist Church members support abortion. They also support stricter environmental regulations. Um, and about the same percentage, about 60%, support same-sex marriage and homosexuality. Um, but that's just in the United States Church. And you take a broader view of the United Methodist Church in the global presence. A lot of the churches, um, especially in Africa, have a more hardline conservative view. And it's widely believed that those votes um, skewed or shifted the, the focus and allowed the traditional plan um, with the whole more hardline view on sexuality to pass. Now, 53% isn't all that much in terms of majority. So what are the steps right now that the church is facing? Yes. Yeah. 53% um, is just barely a majority. Um, and coming out of the conference, there's a lot of strong images because there were LGBTQ members and leaders at that conference who literally watched their church vote against their membership and their belonging um, in the church. So going forward, what's going to happen is the, the plan that was voted on in the general conference last week is going to go to the Judicial Council, uh, which is a body within the United Methodist Church that sort of compares the plan to the church's constitution to see if uh, that plan is constitutional. And then if that is upheld, uh, that plan will go into effect January 1st, 2020. So now looking at the members right now, um, those who are gay, who might be married already, what happens to them? And if you are gay and married and you want to come into the church, is that something that you're going to be allowed to do going forth? Uh, so the, the messaging so far, especially, and this was emphasized at Trinity United Methodist, is that um, people who are homosexual, who are LGBTQ, can um, come to the church. They are very much welcome here. The, the plan that was passed was that openly LGBTQ 
people cannot serve um, in the church as sort of ordained or pastoral staff. So you can't go to seminary and become a pastor. And then church leaders cannot hold same-sex marriages in their churches or sort of oversee a same-sex marriage if it's outside of the church. So that's like the very clear definition, but um, in terms of LGBTQ advocates, it's sort of, they're looking at the message that it sends, that if you are an LGBTQ person, you can come to the church, but you just can't lead the church. And now you talked to a pastor at Trinity. So what were some of his thoughts on this decision? Yeah, so I spoke to the Reverend Dr. Eliezer Valentin Canstenon after the, the service, um, and he was the one who led the informational session, and he described being very distraught in finding out the news. Um, he had long been supportive of gay rights in the church um, and including LGBTQ members um, in his, in his uh, body. Um, and that was something that even though he knew it was a divisive issue, he feels very strongly about their inclusion in the church and will continue to advocate for that even with this decision under review. And is that something he's always felt or has he gone from a conservative background to become more open? Yeah, one of the things that stood out um, in my conversation with him was that he grew up in a church that was much more hardline than the United Methodist Church in terms of sexuality. And he talked about as a young person going to the sort of rallies that we think about. Um, he talked about some of the rallies um, that he went to as a young man, um, similar to the Westboro Baptist Church, when they hold signs talking about gay people going to hell and needing to convert uh, from homosexuality. Um, and he had those experiences as a young man, but sort of opened his mind later on um, to being more accepting of people who are LGBTQ. And that sort of pushed him more towards United Methodist Church, which had those open that open door policy. And now, essentially, he's being forced out of the church that had welcomed the people he he was once hateful towards. And did he explain why that shift from that conservative, I hate people who are gay and lesbian or on LGBTQ, to why he chose to be more open and accepting and find a church that would reflect that? Uh, he didn't necessarily talk about the the why at that point, but I think um, given some of our other conversations, it's more sort of the um, the interactions that he had and just like seeing those people as people and seeing that more and more. So now you mentioned that the United Methodist Church is considered or seen as the more progressive church. And as you mentioned, he came to that church because it was more progressive. So for members who are looking for a progressive church with this decision that's just been made, what happens to them? Where can they go? Uh, yeah. So like you mentioned, the United Methodist Church has been very progressive um, in terms of they allow female leadership. Uh, their pastoral staff can get married. Um, this is an issue that has come up with the Catholic Church. Um, they were some of the first churches to recognize freed slaves or um, slavery in general as a social wrong and ordained black ministers. Um, but sort of going forward, until this decision is made in April, it's a little unclear about what vision the United Methodist Church and what direction it is going in. Because if this judicial council that's reviewing their traditional plan rejects it, then it'll need to go under review again, and they'll have to vote essentially to, to figure out the direction of the church going forward. So the church is sort of in a holding pattern right now, even though it does seem as though this traditional plan might be upheld. And with talking to the pastor and other members of the church, do you find that there are people who are preparing to leave the church? Yeah, the, the pastor that I spoke with, Eliezer, he, he sort of mentioned that if this decision is upheld, uh, then pastors and other leaders will be required to sort of sign on to a creed about what the United Methodist Church stands for on sexuality. 
um, and someone in his position, he said very openly to his congregation, if that happens, he will not sign that and he will essentially be kicked out of the United Methodist Church. So you, if this decision is upheld, which you could see as pastors and churches uh, decrying this decision and openly defying it and then essentially being kicked out of the United Methodist Church uh, congregation. And then these pastors and churches would sort of be on their own and whether they form a new church and it creates sort of a schism where you have an out, uh, creates sort of a schism where you have an outbreak of a different church body that could take years. But in the meantime, they, they would be not allowed to be United Methodist church leaders. And just if that pastor does leave or other pastors decide to leave because of this, what does that do to the church community? I will definitely split it. I mean, the United Methodist church is a lot, a lot like other churches, um, in the U S that they have declining populations. So any sort of schism that takes members away is hurting the church overall. Um, and it's this ongoing debate um, among churches, not just United Methodist Church, about whether you want a smaller church that they see as, quote-unquote, more holy or more pure versus a larger church that has more of a gray area in terms of social issues. And it's 2019. So did this come as a surprise to members in the clergy, or is this something that they thought was coming? This was a surprise to many members of the clergy, especially in the United States, who had been taking this more progressive view um, on social issues. Like the Pastor Eliezer talked about that he really thought the one church plan would pass, and a lot of other people I spoke with in the church felt that way as well. So this came as quite a shock. Um, And if you do look at images from the General Conference, you can see that distraught as people were learning that the, the plan had passed and their LGBTQ friends or their church leaders would no longer be allowed in their church. Um, we have always known this is not a perfect institution. You know, no, no institution is perfect, especially because we know it's composed of imperfect people. So it's disappointing, you know, the decision was made, but not, not to the point of saying, you know, what, what is going to be my, my take on this now? You know, where, where do I go? No, this is my church. And uh, something that I have said to folks who have asked me in the church is, you know, I will have to be kicked out. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not leaving. And if I'm kicked out, then I can't stay. But for me, this is my church. This is my home. And uh, and like me, there are other, you know, there are thousands of other pastors who are in the same place um, that for whom this is home. And so um, not being here becomes a, you know, becomes a challenging thing. But but we are not the ones who want to leave. You know, we're not the people who want to leave the denomination because, oh, you know, you're not playing our way. You know, we are the ones who, you know, if this plan, so the traditional plan moves forward, we are the people who are, been, who are going to be told, then you have to go because that's the, the, those are the options. Um, but it's not because we want to leave. There are some things that I know are right and some things that I know are wrong, and I need to live with that reality. Thank you, sister. And so... Part of the challenge here is that we are told, um, for me, is we can live in this, rea- in this new reality, um, but we're not willing to compromise integrity, you know, what we believe and what we believe to be the right thing. Um, so that has implications on how we then live our, our lives in this church. And, and if the traditional plan is the one that finally succeeds and, and then the church moves, this is the way we're going to be living. Um, you know, what, you, what you're going to hear, of course, is later on is that, you know, a lot of pastors are going to be 
kicked out because you know we're all going to be asked if we will uphold this uh, teaching of the church, mm-hmm. and uh, for many of us that's not possible, mm-hmm. you know, and and uh, it hasn't been possible for a long time for many pastors in the United Methodist Church. It's just you know we wanted to maintain that unity and and continue working together. Um, but with the plan that has been adopted, that simply is now is even to the point of, you know, you have to do what we say or you're out, mm-hmm. which actually breaks even our own understanding of who we have been as United Methodists for, for, for decades. Um, because as United Methodists, we have always been the church that says, you know, we are open. We're an open church. We're an inclusive church. And we accept the, you know, differences of opinions and ideas. With this decision, it's just a slippery slope into, you know, well, now is this, and so later, you know, will be something else. So you're going to be have to sign up for, you know, this is the right belief, this is the only belief, and we have not been in that place. We're not a creedal church, but this decision might lead us into becoming a creedal church where you have to actually sign the document that says, I believe the creed this and that creed, and we have never been there and that has been one of the blessings of the United Methodist Church. That's actually why I came to the Methodist Church because I didn't have to say I believe exactly the way you believe mm-hmm. and, uh, and that was liberating for me. Yeah. That's why this is home. You know, some people have told me that they're leaving because they feel that they have, uh, that you know, the church, this church is just not what they thought. And I don't mean Trinity, I mean just the, the United Methodist Church. And, um, and so I'm, I'm still working with some of those folks who have mentioned that and the idea that they will be leaving. Because the reality is, you know, um, we're not going to find a perfect church anywhere. This is no, there is no church that is going to be just exactly what I want. It was just uh, too difficult for me emotionally to hear how gay and lesbian people who were part of the General Conference, who were delegates to the General Conference, how they were made feel that they were not important to this church and that you're only important if you're heterosexual you know and you know and for me of course is you know talking about you know what an incredible thing to think that you know heteronormative behavior is the thing that you know the church is also going to be sustaining and um and is is that the real place we're supposed to be you know, in that place. And for me, is no, you know, we... So I know that you spoke to the pastor, but were there other people at the church that were willing to talk about what their views are on this decision? Yeah, I caught up with a woman named Denise Berry uh, after the church service, um, and she sort of talked about watching the general conference. She she streamed it with her husband when she could, um, and getting more and more distraught as the, the conference played out. It's a very, it's an issue where very good people disagree, and my husband and I did watch um, that you could stream it live and watch it. We were watching it off and on. Um, he's retired, so he could watch it a lot. I was working on Monday. Um, but anyway, the proceedings were difficult to watch. Um, and very good people disagree on this issue and have for a long time. People I respect on either end. Um, my husband and I were in favor of the one church plan. Now with this vote, which is still, um, there's still some things up in the air, whether it's actually constitutional with the Constitution of the United Methodist Church. So it's still not clear exactly what's gonna happen from this. But um, this is a vote that says you have to have that a, the cer- a certain belief, what they call the traditional belief. 
And if you don't have that, um, then you need to leave the United Methodist Church. Right. That's essentially what it said. So I'm disappointed by that. Uh, my heart did not want a fracture or a split. And I'm not saying that's what's going to happen. We honestly don't know yet. But um, that was part of the discussion at the general conference that um, not how are we going to stay together, but this is the view. And now we're going to talk about people that disagree with this can leave. Mm -hmm. That was essentially. Yeah. So I'm not sure if that answers your question, but that hurts my heart. That's not the way I wanted to see the discussion go. And then I also uh, spoke with Daniel Valentin Morales, uh, who, who serves in the church. He's part of the choir. And he talked about this decision. While it is sort of distressing, it's not going to change his outlook on ministry and, and his work with LGBTQ people and fighting for their rights. I mean, I am very, I mean, just to lay it out there, I'm, I'm very like pro-LGBTQ. Um, I'm, I'm there to be reconciling and to be working with them. Um, I, I'm very disappointed in, in the decision the church has made. But with that being said, I mean, you, you, we just have to keep, keep it on. You know, there's just because the, the church body as a whole has decided on a traditional plan uh, does not mean that I as an individual don't have uh, my, my own free will granted to me by God. Uh, and that doesn't mean that I'm going to stop working with my LGBTQ brothers and sisters, right? They're, uh, in my opinion, they are children of Christ and, and they should be loved and, and respected and included into that family. Um, uh, it's just a little bit harder. The path is, has been made a little bit harder, but it's been hard for centuries at this point. So it's just a matter of continuing the fight. Uh, and to quote Martin Luther King, the arc of uh, justice is long, or the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Um, and it's important to remind and keep that in mind. The way I felt about the church now is the way I felt about the church before this decision was made. Uh, we, I mean, the church has a history, a, a millennia-long history of being anti-gay, of being homophobic. Uh, and so really the, the reconciling churches that have been established are just in that next step of the arc of justice, right? Um, I was not surprised, unfortunately, by the decision made by the General, Com General Conference. Um, I was, of course, disappointed, but not surprised. Uh, we, we in the church still have a lot of work to do internally with regards to uh, accepting our gay and trans brothers and sisters. Uh, and that's, you know, stuff that individual communities are going to have to work on. Maybe our General, General Conference is not the place to solve that issue. Maybe the issue is to solve that uh, in individual communities where we can really have an effect on our, on those gay, uh, trans communities that exist right alongside of us. Mm -hmm. Friends from uh, an old church that I used to go to in the area who are, you know, they're, they're, they're taking a hard look at their membership and whether or not they're gonna, they feel comfortable continuing there. But again, as they've told me and as I believe, that it depends on, on the leadership of that church specifically. I mean, uh, I know that there are certain churches that are not going to be changing their reconciling ways. Uh, and, and that might be a, a legal or legislative issue in, within the church that will have to be dealt with later on in the future. But um, I know that for right now, they are considering that if, well, you know, if their church stays open to them as an individual and to others like them that they'll stay there even if the general church overall has a more traditional um, outline for the way they want to move forward. Um, but you know it's it's what's most disconcerting about it is just you know we don't know about the future of the church you know there might be groups that are very hard line and, and I don't blame them that might want to that don't feel comfortable even staying with the general institution of the church. Um, and that could lead us down a different path in the future, um, a path that's not unknown to a lot of different Protestant denominations specifically. Um, so it's it's a frightening time, but it's also a time of growth. In terms of the, the work on the ground is not going to change what he does in terms of fighting for their rights, either in the church or outside of the church, to make sure that they feel welcome in society. And besides this, too, were there any other people who were willing to come forward and talk about it, maybe someone who wasn't in favor? 
Yeah, I wasn't able to chat um, on the record in terms of recording conversations with anyone who was very much in favor of this traditional plan. But during the informational session, there was people who spoke about uh, their desire to see this plan upheld because they think it will keep the church pure um, on this issue that they believe had been decided long ago in terms of Bible teaching. And just with that, can you quickly describe what the the mood in the room was when you have these people who are against this decision that was just made and then people who are saying, no, this was right, this is how it's always been done? Yeah, the mood uh, was definitely somber um, on both sides because they, I think everyone could sense that this was an issue that was going to be very divisive for the entire church and could cause problems not just on that Sunday, but for Sundays, for months and weeks, and for and for Sundays for weeks, months, and years to come. Um, so that was definitely a, a something that everyone acknowledged. But the atmosphere around that informational session was very respectful, and I think that's something that the pastor really emphasized, that we're not here to make a decision. Uh, we're just sort of here to answer questions, whether you have questions about the church in terms of this plan being correct and whether that aligns with the church teaching, or you have questions about whether this plan could be overturned. They're going to be answered in that session and for days to come if, if you have more questions. But it was really just about sharing the, the information that was decided last week. And were you able to speak to anyone who was in the LGBTQ plus community? I was not able to catch up with anyone who's an LGBTQ member of the church that day, but I know that you had reached out and were looking to speak to members of that community. So yes, yeah, so I talked to two members of the Frederick Center, which is a nonprofit advocacy organization um, that advocates for LGBTQ plus rights. Um, so I talked to two members who are both in the church, one who is uh, considering whether he has to leave and one who is already left the church because of this decision. And for the member you spoke with who is still a member of the church, how is he dealing with, with what transpired last week? Well, one thing he talked about was how his pastor responded to it. Uh, my name is Richard Stonebreaker. Yeah, so um, I sit on the board of directors for the Frederick Center, and I oversee their marketing and advertising. Um, the, the day the decision was made, I got a phone call from my pastor. He was calling to check in and see how I was doing and how I was feeling. Um, and so it's just going to be, you know, it's, it's going to be one of those things where time's going to tell all. There's this message that it's not as welcoming. Um, he is married. Um, he was not able to get married within the church. So I think he's already faced a lot of adversity in terms of there were rules that he, that prevented him from doing things like he wanted to get married in the church or be part of this church that he grew up in. Um, so I think he's kind of contemplating, you know, this message and that what's happening versus the fact that he grew up in this church and that it's been, you know, a community for him. Mm-hmm. And from that conversation, did anything stand out? Um. I think one thing that stood out was just, you know, what they talk about going forward and how pastors can play a role in this and how other members can help. I, um, he and then the other member both talked about just how um, that immediate response from pastors made a difference to whether they could be still part of it or um, understanding where their role is in the church. And what sort of things in that immediate response really touched him? Um, I think just the fact that his pastor seemed to be more on the understanding um, understanding of what was going on and he wasn't like, yes, this is correct, that this is the decision that we're going to uphold. I think it was that more wavering of like, we're not really expecting this. Um, I think the other thing that did really stick out to me, though, was that he did not think it was a surprise. He knew it was coming and that was kind of disheartening to hear. Mm-hmm. And was that something that he had seen given his experience in the church or just his experiences overall? I'm not really sure. I think it just 
Um, compared to what you said when you said that they saw it as a surprise, I think he was like, well, we've seen, you know, there's been months of it leading up to this and this is something that's come up before. So we're not quite surprised that it would go this way. I think this is going to serve as a wake up call. And I think that there may be some change down the road. Um, just kind of seeing other individuals, other young, um, Methodists that are LGBTQ or not, you know, just young United Methodists, they're starting to cause change. And, um, you know, some of us in different chat groups and different posts that I've seen on Facebook, they talk about, you know, there may be a split within the United Methodist Church, the U.S. United Methodist Church. The church is growing, but um, in the United States, it's not growing as much. And I do feel that there may be a divide and that you know, the, the future of the United Methodist Church for the United States is with our younger individuals. And they're the ones, you know, people my age and, and even younger and a little, you know, even older, they are the ones that are going to start making these changes. Um, one thing that was always told to me uh, that by a, someone I was very close with, they said attrition takes care of everything. And, you know, while I hate to say that, it, sometimes it does happen. And as over time, things change. It's just sometimes they don't change fast enough. And then you also spoke with a woman who has left the church given this decision, correct? I was a member at Damascus United Methodist Church until two days ago when I gave up my membership officially which felt weird. So Susan Leathery has left the church. She now um, goes to the UCC, which is a much more opening, open church for her. Um, but she did talk about, just you know, that was really hard to leave this church. She really stuck out to me even more so that she had been out in her church, but she kind of called herself the token lesbian of the church. And she mentioned how she worked in the kitchen with the other church ladies, and they might say, hey, are you dating somebody? But that's all they would talk about. It just was this kind of not so taboo since they all knew, but no one really wanted to really get to know what it was like to be someone in this LGBTQ community. And it's interesting that she decided to move to a different church when it seems often that LGBTQ people who are discriminated against in the church decide to leave faith entirely. Yeah, she talked. I mean, she also is one of those people who grew up and in the church. And I think it is an important part of her um a part of herself to have that faith and so I think she would have liked to stay with the church but I think she was feeling this she wanted to be in a, a community where she could be more open and be herself maybe if you, somebody has grown up without a home church it sounds easy to just say oh why don't you just pick a different church because there are lots of churches that are welcoming now and that's true there are other churches that are welcoming to gays and lesbians but it is so difficult, it even still difficult for me um, to just say, well, let me just go to another church. This is a lifetime of memories and a lifetime of traditions um, that we don't want to give up. We don't want to have to give that up. You know, it's really, it's really disheartening. It hurts. There's, there's harm done. And even though I have found a new church home that I enjoy, it's not the same. It's not the same as being welcomed into the church that I was born into, baptized in, raised in, and plan to stay in. It's not the same.
And she also like she was one of the people who really talked about how her pastor immediately sent out a really good response. So she sent a a very wonderful, warm letter after the decision a few days ago, saying how this is not the church that that she envisions or she wants to, and her heart is hurting. And it was very supportive um, of the LGBTQ community, and I was very appreciative of that. Um, kind of said, you know, we're, we're going to be there for you. Like, this is not something we necessarily agree with. Um, but even that was, you know, was just too much, I think, overwhelming to stay with in that church. Mm-hmm. Um, and she actually spoke about um, this this teenager that she knows, the family, like, and the teenager just came out and just kind of how hush-hush it was still. Like, her parents didn't want to talk about it within the church community, even though her daughter was out. And they were very accepting and willing to, you know, willing to support their daughter is just that they didn't want to mention it with the church. So I think it was like this interesting look inside how these churches and these pastors might be more progressive, but that community still can be pretty conservative. Mm-hmm. And obviously for the church to sustain itself, it needs new, younger and newer generations entering the church and these younger generations see more progressive. Do you see that as a problem or do any of the people that you talk to see it as a problem that their church institutions are taking a more conservative view when socially they're taking a more progressive view? Yeah, Susan talked about that a little bit and just I think in like a kind of disheartening aspect of, you know, what about the youth who are in this community, who are in the um, church community as well, or just the, uh, the more progressive youth, you know, what happens to them? Are they going to be welcome to the church? Um, are they going to feel comfortable? I mean, being in the closet is just so difficult. I did it 20 years ago, but it was it was very hard. It's very damaging to be in the closet. And for somebody who's questioning themselves and, you know, growing up as a teenager is difficult enough, but to be part of a group where you feel like you're going to get kicked out if you show your true self, um, that's really disheartening. And now the youth, I mean, that's that's my biggest concern is that the youth in the Methodist Church really know that this decision is, is not necessarily what every pastor or their pastor thinks. Um, you know, who's, who's, who's going to want to follow God? And, and after hearing... After hearing the decision, you know? Because even if you're welcome and you can be part of the church, it's a question of can you be comfortable? Can you really be yourself? Especially in a time where they might be trying to come out of the closet and actually announce, hey, this is who I am. This is who I want to be, which can be very difficult if your church community may not be as supportive of that as it might have been in the past. But talking about the future... What happens with that church outlook? You know, did your did the pastor mention anything about what the future of his church is going to look like? Yeah, like I mentioned, they're sort of in a holding pattern until this April decision, and that's when um, a lot of these churches and pastors will need to make a hard decision about what their future holds. But Pastor Eliezer talked about that even though we're in this sort of holding pattern right now, it does not change his work day to day in terms so, of outreach and work with me, the community. For me, in this moment, is simply. As I said earlier at the uh, the gathering this morning, is you know wait and see, wait and see what is going to happen. Um, and I thought it would you know for me it's also again it was important to share the fact that you know if we come to this point and this is where the church is going to move move to, you know not only am I going to be kicked out, but it's also a lot of other pastors going to be kicked out um, because if you know if you if you have integrity with what you believe, then you know you cannot sign a document that says that you're going to uphold 
something that is so contrary to what you feel is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. So that's where I am. Yeah. That's where I am. Before we let you all go, we wanted to give you all a preview of what is upcoming in this week's edition of 72 Hours. So we have our features reporter, Kate Masters, here. Hi, Wyatt. How are you doing, Kate? I'm good. How are you? So 72 comes out on Thursday. Yes. What can people expect? So our, our biggest story, our cover story, is about a documentary called The Sunday Sessions. And so Baltimore filmmaker Richard Yeagley was basically given pretty, I would say, unprecedented access to conversion therapy, which if you're unfamiliar with the term, it's sort of it's a therapeutic technique with the idea that you can change a client's sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, the language kind of varies, but a lot of times it's basically used to try to change same-sex attractions. What Richard did um, was follow a therapist named Chris Doyle and his client uh, named Nathan Newick um, and sort of followed them for a year and a half. And sort of it was a very fly-on-the-wall approach. And he's observing Nate, uh, he's observing Nathan's therapy sessions and sort of going behind the scenes to learn what uh, conversion therapy really entails. And so it's a really interesting look at a method that's sort of widely discussed uh, but not commonly known about sort of in that detail. And then Chris Doyle is interesting um, and pertinent to Maryland because even though he is based in Virginia, he has a license to practice in Maryland and is currently suing the state for its conversion ban uh, or its conversion therapy ban for minors, which passed last year in 2018. So I take a look of all of that, I tie in some local aspects as well. There is a Frederick therapist who offers it, uh, Dr. James Remke, who's the founder of Vital Sources in Frederick. And he gave me some information about how and why he offers same-sex therapy techniques. Um, and he sent me a really kind of interesting email statement, even though he didn't want to talk to me about that in person. Yes, yeah, so I think this is an interesting conversation to have because you've this conversion therapy idea seems like it is something that could be happening in the past, but it is happening now uh, w with people that are living in modern society. Was there anything that really stood out about what's happening today? Well, I think one thing that Richard did really well, the filmmaker, um, is like you said, I think that a lot of times conversion therapy is sort of thought of as this sort of archaic thing that doesn't really happen anymore. Um, a lot of people associate it with aversion therapy, which is kind of the old school technique of, you know, using, I mean, there, you know, people say that, you know, there used to be electroshock therapy administered or, you know, like drugs that could induce nausea um, to try and like aver people from having those attractions. But if that happened, that's not really the form that it takes today. Instead, it's kind of these practitioners who I think genuinely believe in what they're doing, but they're, they're using mainstream psychological techniques to kind of, I'd say, shroud the way they're talking to clients. And it's it's sort of they have a lot of them have religious or conservative motives and they personally come from a background where homosexuality is a shameful thing but they're using sort of these mainstream stream techniques to talk to their clients um with the idea of converting their sexual orientation and that to me was really interesting because i think it's not what a lot of people think of when they think of conversion therapy mm -hmm. and so there's christopher doyle he's involved with something that's happening in maryland in terms of this these procedures happening how is it 
seen in the overall psychological community? Um, I talk about this in the article a little bit, but it's safe to say that virtually every mainstream medical organization has issued statements against um, conversion therapy. So you're talking, you know, the American Psychological Association, the American College of Physicians, the American Psychiatric uh, Association, on and on and on. Um, and, And the basis of that largely is just because there's no good medical research anywhere that sexual orientation can be changed through therapy. Like it's widely agreed upon that there is a sexual sexual continuum, but that's it's never a choice. You know, people can't just change based on talk therapy. So that's something obviously people will want to check out this week in 72, but you also visited a local cidery as well, correct? Yes, that is correct. Um, it's called Distillery Lane and it's in Jefferson. Um, it's sort of down this winding road and then you pull up and it's kind of magical because there's this old Victorian house and this sort of, I mean, it's February now, so they're a little gnarled, but you know, these groves of apple tree trees and they're a cidery in Jefferson that was recently featured in Food and Wine is kind of this um, local artisanal network that's sort of headed at least in you know in the eyes of the magazine by Skype I'm going to mess up this name Spike Gertie who is sort of a, a local celebrity chef um, he's behind Woodbury Kitchen in Baltimore and he recently opened um, a Rake's Progress in the Line Hotel in DC and he's one of a growing number of chefs who are taking this hyper local approach you know so like really highlighting mid-Atlantic cuisine and local ingredients from the area um, and Distillery Lane um, was one of Spike Gertie's first wholesale providers. He was actually one of their first customers. And they do um, apple ciders from really cool heritage breeds. So, I mean, I'm not going to assume that you might not have heard of them, but apples like Bramley Seedlings or Kingston Blacks um, and these breeds that, you know, a lot of times are, are common in England or France, but they aren't really found usually in America. Yeah. I used to work for an apple orchard, so I know all of those. Oh, my God. And, Kate, each week you review a local restaurant, so what can we expect to hear about this week? Um, So this week I uh, reviewed a place called Surf House Island Cantina, which is in Urbana. Um, And I think I've gotten some flack recently because I've had sort of this anti-cantina approach that I've incorporated strongly into my personal brand because I review a lot of cantina-style restaurants Mm -hmm. in Frederick. Um, But without giving too much away, I will say that Surf House um, was good. It was was maybe the, the, the most recent cantina I've reviewed that I actually really liked. So are you a cantina? a convert? I wouldn't say that I'm a cantina convert. Mostly I'm just dying for some diversity in Frederick's restaurant scene. Um, and you see a lot of the same concepts open over and over again. I'm not against cantinas per se. I would just love for the area to see something more. Mm, so cantinas need to try a little harder. I, I think restaurateurs, you know, need to diversify what they're offering because I think Frederick's ready for it. You know, I think that we are. Well, I will look forward to reading your review this week in Taste Buds. Well, thank you very much for having me in. Great. Frederick Uncut is produced by me, Wyatt Massey. And me, Heather Mangilio. Along with Graham Cullen. And edited by Graham Cullen. We'll see you next week.